This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Super Investors is brought to you by the Felder Report. I do a ton of reading and research every week. I put together a Saturday morning email with the five things I found most valuable during the previous week. It could be an article, a chart, um, a tweet, what have you. If you're interested in receiving something like that, just go to thefelderreport.com right there on the homepage. Click the button, join now, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Danielle DiMartino Booth. After a successful career in Wall Street, Danielle spent years as special advisor to Richard Fisher while he was head of the Dallas Fed. In her role there, she provided an invaluable markets-based perspective to one of the most independent thinkers to have served in a leadership position at the Federal Reserve. What's more, she did so during one of the most tumultuous periods in the central bank's history, the Great Financial Crisis. In this interview, Danielle discusses the evolution of the Fed through that period and how the policies developed and implemented then have played a role in everything from inequality and social unrest to asset bubbles and inflation. She also lays out several of the potential outcomes facing investors and citizens alike as the result of the fiscal dominance and monetization of the debt we're seeing today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Danielle DiMartino Booth. wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Danielle, welcome back to the show. Jesse, it's great to be here. What's taken us so long? You know, I don't know. It's probably my recording schedule is so <laughs> erratic. You know, I, I think maybe I did five or six episodes last year. I'm trying to get back to a monthly uh, schedule here, but I was really excited to have you back on. Like I mentioned before we started recording, I was so embarrassed the first time I had you on. I hadn't read your book um, that, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to have you back on to talk about uh, some of these developments and the evolution of the Fed. Uh, and uh, I read your book over the last week, and I think there's it, it was actually the timing was great because there's so much about it that's relative, relevant to what's going on today. There was one quote I just want to kind of kick this off with, um, where you were quoting um, your boss, uh, Richard Fisher, saying, I think there's a potential for riots in our own streets, social unrest like we've never seen. Um, and, 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 and quote, but you go on to say, I remembered what had happened in Greece. The Fed's policies have a real and potentially devastating impact on people's lives. Um, do you think the policies that we've seen, uh, you know, on the part of the Fed since the great financial crisis are a major cause of the social unrest we're seeing today from both the left and the right? I, I do. Uh, I think it is one of, of the root causes, Jesse, I, I um, the degradation of the public school system in the 70s and the 80s was very much uh, not attributable to Fed policy, but it laid the groundwork then for Greenspan to come in and begin to proactively increase the inequality divide because the focus with him in a leadership position shifted increasingly to the stock market as a barometer for the efficacy of Fed policy. And that has been taken so far to an extreme in a post-COVID world. Uh, I'm no longer surprised at, at what I see on the evening news. And I, I will tell you that, uh, that, last, uh, that on January the 6th, that Richard reached out to me and he said, while I expected riots in the streets, I never imagined what we saw today so tragic, so frightening and, you know, we went back and forth for a little while because it was, it was beyond anything we could have imagined. But when you think about what the consequences can be of not educating your populace, of increasing the inequality divide such that they can only look across the horizon and see what the other side lives like. And when that divide gets wider and wider... In between, the gap is filled with more and more animus and sadly more and more ignorance that leaves a wider swath of the population as a, as, as a factor of time vulnerable to being brainwashed and believing that there's got to be a bad guy. 
because you can't sit them down and explain. You can't sit the whole world down in, in kindergarten and say, this is the Cantillion effect. And this is what happens when Fed policy's transmission mechanism breaks down. It's a lot easier to say they're the bad guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I applaud you for your efforts at trying to educate people through your book. I think it's absolutely necessary. And there have been too few people from inside the Fed being able to come out and, and tell like it is. You know, it makes me think of, um, there was a quote or actually a piece that Warren Buffett wrote back in 99 or 2001, right around that time, about 20 years ago where he was talking about stock market valuations. And part of that uh, puzzle was that <clears throat> uh, labor share had fallen so dramatically, even to 2000, that he said, you know, this is unsustainable. Labor is at some point going to um, demand, um, you know, a, a greater slice of the pie, I think is the metaphor he used. Um, since then, we've seen labor share decline even more dramatically. Obviously, that's not... Um, all attributable to Fed policy, but it seems like the Fed has definitely pursued policies that uh, you know favor capital over labor. Uh, they have, and um, I, I'm 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 absolutely not being political when I say this, but if you simply study the data in terms of where political contributions land, uh, they have increasingly moved over to the left. And so what you've had is at the same time you've had Fed policy uh, pushing the indexing craze, which I call it at this point uh, because people bl invest blindly. I don't think anybody would dispute that. But don't fight the Fed is another, man is, is, is another way of saying index. Don't actively manage. So that compounded by the Democrats relinquishing their – duty to their, their promise to the people who call themselves a member of the Democratic Party, relinquishing that to, to big corporate interests and lobbyists means that you've left out this gigantic swath of citizenry who has no voice. And so, but, but again, you know, I, I read an interesting Bloomberg column recently that said the Fed can do nothing to reduce the inequality divide and I was extremely critical of the column simply because it didn't specify that while that is true, and that is the true tragedy, Jesse, Fed policy can do nothing to decrease the inequality divide. The flip side of it is it can do everything to increase it. And there has simply been a lack of, uh, the, 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 there's been a lack of acceptance. There's been a lack of ownership on the part of central bankers, Rob, uh, Rob Kaplan of the Dallas Fed, was the closest it came a few months ago when he said that Fed policy only post-pandemic had widened the inequality divide. But that's about the closest you'll get a, a former central banker to saying we're one of the root causes of what we're seeing in terms of a breakdown in society. Well, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's incredibly disingenuous for me. I've, I've said and written for a long time that, you know, for the Fed to explicitly pursue policies to create a wealth effect but we take no responsibility for wealth inequality. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. But I, I really appreciate that you, 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 uh, I guess, um, point out the connections between uh, Fed policy and passive investing or indexing or, or whatever, because I think it was James Montier, GMO, years ago wrote that, uh, you know, quantitative easing, essentially price insensitive buying of, of, you know, financial assets, namely, you know, treasuries, but um, so is passive investing. And so investors are, you know, uh, buying price insensitive, you know, through a price insensitive strategy is the uh, the ultimate way to to not fight the Fed, but essentially go along with their price insensitive buying strategy as well. So, um, which, which feeds upward momentum in prices and and increases the monopolization of corporate America, all at the same time. Yeah, a absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, Jonathan Tepper and I had a great conversation on that topic about a year ago about his book. But and he's done some terrific work in the space. I want to get change it up a little bit and let's talk about. Um, I, I guess it's kind of the the, uh, the the culture within the Fed that kind of perpetuates these issues. You you say there's two words you need to know to understand the culture or, or the operations of the Fed, and that's hubris and myopia. Can you explain that? So 
My mentor at the Fed, Harvey Rosenblum, 40-year veteran, director of research. He retired while I was still there. Um, he, he plays a prominent place in the book. Uh, and towards the last few years of his being at the, at the Fed, he completely did a 180 and abandoned the orthodoxy at the Fed. And it was Harvey who introduced me to the term monetary myopia. And I, I, I asked him a question as he was walking out the door. I said, Harvey, what's your What's your biggest regret? And people are always like, oh, there's Danielle with a gray cloud following her. Well, it's easier to talk about your greatest accomplishments, but it's, it's a lot less easy if you're in an interview for a job. You know, what's your biggest weakness? Uh, but he said, my biggest regret is that I've been here for 40 years. And as a director of research, I've never been able to direct those academics and research away from continuing on the path of exploring their dissertations. To what aim? I have no idea because research at the Fed is not necessarily done as an endeavor to improve monetary policy making. And so you, 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 you enter an organization that is so married to its models that it can't divorce itself and bring in new data series that might, you know, it, it, I, I can only imagine what, you know, how difficult it's been in a post-COVID environment to have to go from seasonally adjusted uh, data series that you can quarterize to real-time TSA data and weekly data on the number of small businesses that are open. This is completely against the way the Fed does its research. It's completely against the way that they conduct monetary policy, even though we know that markets and the economy are a day-to-day breathing entity. Yeah, you know, I, I was astounded to read some of the statistics. I, I think the main one you point out in, in the book is that um, when research, I'm just going to quote the book, when researchers at the Federal Reserve and Treasury tried to reproduce the results of 67 papers from 13 prestigious journals, they found that in half the cases, even after contacting the authors for more information, the results were not replicable, making their conclusions as reliable as a coin toss. That, that's astounding to me that they would rely so heavily on research processes that, that are so unreliable. It, it is. And what's more astonishing is how much time is devoted to these endeavors that you can easily characterize in one word as being futile. So it, look, there, there, was, there was a moment in time when I finally escaped the research department and I, I got to a different area of the bank and I said, well, here I am, and I'm going to be in a productive area of the firm. And I finally fought the battle, and I've got several monitors here, and I can follow the markets. I've got CNBC on in the background. Mute it the way it should be. And I look up at 10.57 a.m., and I see the same exact thing that I'd seen in the research department for years. I see the higher-ups in the division gathering in the foyer, getting ready to go out into the elevator banks to go down to the executive dining room and go to lunch for two hours and then come back and enjoy their privilege. And I would say to myself, I mean, my hair was always on fire because I'm like, but you don't understand the stock market's open. You you can't go anywhere. The stock market's open. And, but again, that is the kind of entity that it is. And I guess it's because I came off wall street and you'd you'd have been drawn and quartered if you'd gotten gotten up off your desk, you know, when the market was open back in the day. So it, it, but it was so, foreign to me. And yet this was an entity that had enormous power over the average household in in terms of how you invest, what you borrow, at what rate you borrow in terms of saying, you know, Bill Dudley making a speech saying it is good and American to take the cash out equity out of your home because that helps, you know, feed the wealth effect. I mean, insanity. And yet people look at the Fed as being, you know, kind of this, Godlike, you know, they know what they're doing. They've all studied. We should listen to them and do exactly as they say. Yeah, I mean, it just from through reading the book and a lot of the anecdotes that you, that you write in there. I mean, it's 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 an echo chamber and of of a lot of useless uh, data. Yeah, and it strikes me as just the opposite. You you study, you know. Ray Dalio, the biggest, some would argue, the most successful hedge fund on the planet. And he talks about, you know, the, the key to his success 
is a diversity of opinion, really cultivating a diversity of opinion, strong debates within, you know, the, the company over important issues and, and really being able to come to a consensus that's reached through through this diversity and debate. And the Fed strikes me as the exact opposite of that, especially the Fed under Janet Yellen and some of the, the stuff where she kind of went out of her way to, to uh, dismiss or even, um, you know, uh, I guess limit the power of people that were dissenting. She, she absolutely did. And, and, and Janet Yellen was singularly focused to an even greater extent than Ben Bernanke on the idea of the 2% inflation target. Uh, you know, as, as long as Greenspan was in the house and you can go back and read the transcripts all the way back to when she, the, prior to when she was even on the board, when she was just the head of the San Francisco fed and she was always this major advocate for 2% inflation targeting. Forget the fact that inflation understates healthcare and, and housing. That's actually the point, but, but I digress. But she was the biggest advocate, and the minute Greenspan got out the door, the only thing the maestro, I, I put that in air quotes, and I have ever agreed on is that the, the true inflation target should be zero. Because that's exactly how much households and companies are comfortable with costs rising. You don't want to plan for the, for the value of the dollar to be cut in half in 50 years. Seems like a stupid plan. But the minute Greenspan was out the door, she and Bernanke ran that 2% inflation target down the throats of the others on the committee. A young Jay Powell was none too happy about that or QE3 and spoke articulately as a markets player and was cast down and disregarded. But to this day, it is that same 2% target that was Yellen's baby that the Fed hides behind to justify nonstop money printing. Yeah, and I want to come back to the, the 2% um, target. But before we, before we do, um, I, you know, I want to, uh, I guess... Get to you, you. You write a lot, especially towards the end of the book, when you're going through, you know, the process of deciding on QE one, QE two, QE three. Um, that uh, you quote Keynes on animal spirits and and how you know that really might be um, the only tool that they, that they have now. I, I think you discuss in the book that QE and ZERP don't have much power to support the real economy. Um, those tools are far more, you know, about managing animal spirits. Um, I guess my question is, do you think this K-shaped recovery that we've seen in which markets have screamed higher while many Americans are suffering is emblematic of this policy dilemma? I do. I think it shows how very trapped the Fed is within its own policymaking framework. And because because Greenspan wanted the wealth effect through housing. And then Bernanke wanted the wealth effect, this is all in the record, through the stock market. Uh, they believe, or at least, at least they have to believe, that trickle-down exists. Otherwise, they would march up to Congress and give back their second mandate of maximizing employment. There's simply no other explanation. And yet what we've seen on full display in a post-pandemic world is one Powell press conference after another with the, the pleading on bended knee for more fiscal stimulus, and yet he won't finish the sentence. He wants more fiscal stimulus from Congress because the Fed has failed on its second mandate of maximizing employment. All they can do is try and push the wealth effect through the stock market, and I get a lot of feedback on Twitter, you know, that's impossible to do. You can put reserves into the banking system, but you can't force the banks to lend. You can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. True, but there's this assumption that the Fed is buying all of the bonds from the banking system, from the broker-dealer network, as opposed to other holders of bonds, who don't want to sit on, they have no interest in a reserve. They have no need for a reserve. They have a need for liquidity. And so they take the cash and then what do they do with it? So people need to understand that the transmission mechanism is alive and that there's also something to be said for the feedback loop between the Fed and its support of the corporate bond market 
and how credit has become much, much more the focus at the Fed versus the stock market. One is is paramount to the other, and people simply do not understand this relationship, but it is exactly what triggered the double bazooka of March the 23rd, 2020. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that uh, some, uh, somebody gave a presentation and they're talking about, you know, corporate spreads widening um, almost always leads to recession. And so you could see why the Fed, you know, would want to target spreads. But but to me, you know, we've always, as market watchers, uh, many of us have, have always watched the Fed and especially QE, when they switched over to QE as, you know, a, a specific targeting of, of asset prices in the stock market rather than, you know, any other guys that they, they, they might purport. Um, but to me, it was, you know, a paper came out recently uh, that showed a stock market decline better predicts the FOMC's behavior than any of the 38 macroeconomic indicators available in Bloomberg's database. Um, to me, that made it plain, right, that, that they're really targeting uh, the stock market. They are targeting the stock market, but they're targeting the stock market through the, the credit bond. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a story that, that that I can tell in my sleep. And it is that that on Halloween 2018, the, the debt of General Electric uh, was downgraded. And overnight, it was trading in junk territory. 41, uh, two weeks later, November the 14th, junk bond issuance in the United States froze solid. That prompted the bloodbath that we saw Christmas Eve, the meltdown in the stock market. Again, the the freezing up of the credit markets prompted CFOs saying, "Well, we might not be looking at corporate at share buybacks anymore." And that that followed through into the stock market. And on January the fourth, we had the Powell pivot. And we, if you see the move come unhinged, corporate volatility, that is going to get Jay Powell's attention much faster than the VIX rising because one feeds the other. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I mean, but to me, I think the, the key thing, and I, I'm, I, this is why, you know, and, and we can talk about, you know, Jay Powell's evolution <laughs> over the, the last uh, 10 years, I guess, in light of this, but it seems to me that once you understand that you know, the, the, the power in your tools in, in QE and ZERP is really through animal spirits and not through affecting the economy uh, and, and supporting asset prices. Isn't that really, I mean, it seems to me like a deal with the devil, right? We're going to push up asset prices. Um, but then if we ever try to normalize policy, uh, we're facing a stock market decline, a, a normal a normalization in, in valuations and stock market valuations and in, in spreads in these things. Um, is going to have a very painful effect. And so, um, you know, they're really trapped. They can't allow the stock market or any other asset markets to normalize. And, and maybe this is why, do you think that's why Jay Powell has changed his tune? Jay Powell has changed his tune. And it is because he has seen that as determined as he, as he was to get the Fed funds rate to 3%, which you know, 20 years ago would have been an asinine discussion to have. But he was just determined to get it there. He was determined to, to shrink the balance sheet, to take the Fed out of the business of unconventional monetary policy to begin with. He didn't want QE to be a, con a continuous tool in the toolbox. That was his original intent. And that was what Richard told me, why Richard told me several months after, after we both left the Fed in 2015, that I needed to solely focus on Jay Powell because he was the only adult in the room who wanted to shrink the balance sheet and go back to the toolbox only consisting of interest rate policy. But once Jay Powell looked at the credit markets, the whites of the eyes, and saw the systemic risk unfolding and how quickly it was unfolding compared to the subprime crisis... He realized he was just one person and he had to step back. He was forced to step back and throw more at the situation than before. And it was an admission of being completely entrapped by a monster of their own making. And we have to remember, we have to give credit to the Fed. The Fed was the only one that attempted normalization. I, I gave a speech in Brussels, the European Parliament, years ago, and I said, Mario Draghi is going to retire and the European the, and Europe is going to go into recession before ever pulling out of negative interest rates. And you'd have thought they couldn't have shown me the airport fast enough to get out of Brussels. And yet that's what happened. The Bank of Japan, 
they were never able to extricate themselves. Now they own whatever they own, 60% of, of their own stock market. But what these examples tell us, the Bank of England looking to impose negative interest rates, it's that central bankers can only fall further down the rabbit hole. They cannot pull out of it. Well, and then so, you know, we, we were talking earlier about this 2% two, two inflation target. It seems to me like this this raising of inflation expectations trying to, I mean, explicitly create uh, a, a big boost, a boom in inflation um, is their kind of, you know, attempt at getting out of this, uh, you know, uh, I guess, cycle that they're in of, of constantly having to prop up markets and not allowing them to normalize. It is, and unfortunately, I think that they've, I think that they've drank the MMT Kool Aid, and by, by that I mean that we've seen a dramatic decline in in foreign ownership of U.S. Treasuries in recent years, plural, and we've seen China reduce the duration of its Treasury holdings. That's been on purpose, uh, as and the Fed has stepped in, so nobody has felt anything, and plus we still have attractive yields because they are yields. They exist. But there's, there's a new level of hubris involved in the notion that now that there's been a blue sweep, the Fed's going to get everything it's been asking for, all of this additional stimulus. And according to the past 40 years, there will be no repercussions at all. And inflation will never rear its ugly head. And while that's true, in theory, again, nothing has refuted this. The fact is, you have to go back to 1969 to find the last time the unemployment rate was at 3.5%. And then it rose up to a level that was so miserable for the economy because it rose in lockstep. Uh, the unemployment rate rose in lockstep with inflation. It's called stagflation. And nobody thinks that that's a, a feasible outcome. If you ask people, it's either inflation or or deflation, you cannot open, you can't, you can't say open sesame, abracadabra, and close an output gap that requires years of, of, of work because of the economic scarring that's been done to the economy. So you cannot close an output gap quickly enough to say inflation is rising because it, it's a reflection of, 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 of a quickening economy and escape velocity. But you could see, theoretically, fiscal spending gone wild and interest rates rising while growth remains sclerotic and nobody wants to ponder the specter of stagflation. That's such a great point. Uh, you know, and let's talk in, you know, about, you know, where some of these inflationary, um, impulses could come from. Uh, I'm going to quote the book again, um, because I've, I just found this especially relevant. Um, you wrote, technically, it takes two to tango to monetize the debt. The Treasury first issues the debt, and then the Federal Reserve buys that same debt, which increases the money supply. Effectively, it gives Congress an open checkbook and allows policymakers to put off making hard choices that budgetary constraints would otherwise force. It's almost as if you envisioned what's what's going on right now. Would you see today or, or the you know the last year and kind of where we're headed as monetization? Well, I, I do see it as monetization, and um, I, I'm going to take off my apolitical hat for just a moment and recognize the elephant in the room, and that's we took universal basic income on a test drive by throwing an extra $600 per week at unemployed Americans. And I have friends who – I have a friend who runs a beauty salon, and when the restrictions were lifted in Dallas, she couldn't get her employees back. And that's just a fact of life. So we've taken UBI on a test drive in America and the car ran just fine. And we're sitting in the dealer financing office right now signing up for it. So it appears that this is going to work out just fine and that the Fed can monetize the debt. The issue becomes one of that transmission mechanism being broken. You know, if you want to throw $2,000 of stimulus out there, we can see how Robin Hood really looks when you turbocharge it, if you have untargeted stimulus spending like that. Or you can really try and address who needs the help in the economy. But if you, if you go for this big gamble that says the U.S. government can borrow whatever it wants and the transmission mechanism, mechanism stays failed... 
you're going to have to have a Janet Yellen takeover of the Fed so that there is a direct monetization of treasury issuance and a mechanism by which you deliver money directly into the hands of individuals, into their bank accounts. So you're careening down a path into FedCoin, central bank digital currency, again, direct monetization of the debt. These are things that require reopening the Federal Reserve Act. My good friend David Rosenberg thinks I'm nuts to think that this is a possibility, but there's only so much the Fed can do within the strictures of the law. And thanks to some of the the, the, the challenges put forth in that final version of the $908 billion stimulus bill, it's not as simple as simply flipping a switch back onto those credit facilities because the new law says that you have to have a new kind of an emergency and create a new kind of facility. Yeah. And I, to me, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, um, and, and to take off my a political hat. I, I'm middle of the road, um, honestly. I have no political agenda. But to me, monetization—the the distinction between you know quantitative easing to monetization—happened when the repo market broke down, and it seemed to me that there were just the the, the massive deficit and treasury bill issuance just soared so much that the that the, the financial market just kind of buckled under the strain of that, and the Fed had to step in and start monetizing um, T bills. Yep, they did. And they saw it coming as well. And Lael Brainerd had written extensive papers uh, in the past, call it 18, 24 months prior to not QE, that specified that any type of foray would start in the short end of the T-bill market. And, and so to me, it seems like you know, MMT is really a bipartisan, you know, this bipartisan agreement <laughs> that, you know, there have been no consequences to running up the deficit, to uh, you know, s- spending, to any of these things, and so there's really nothing to to limit us from, uh, you know, I guess creating as much new debt as we want and forcing the Fed to 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 buy it up. There are not any theoretical ones, but there have been several papers that have been published that shows that because of how our fiscal spending is directed. We can shave a few years off of the time expected between now and when China overcomes the United States as the largest economy. Yeah, I think, you know, my point was, I think that's the perception that there are no limits to the amount, but there, I absolutely believe there are limits. Um, but you know, p- part of this, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of the ramifications of this. Um, you know, Stan Druckenmiller's called it the merging of the Fed and the Treasury. Um, it's a precedent we've never seen um, in the history of, of of the Fed. Bill Gross, I think, recently termed it as uh, the Fed is the dog and the Treasury's wagging it. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned before we started recording, I, I kind of had this Freudian slip where I asked you if you want to come on the podcast to talk about Yellen running the Fed. And and you said that's the absolute, that's the right way to phrase it. And so to me, I said, well, what is she talking about? And I had to look back and say, oh, yeah, Yellen's going to be head of the Treasury. But to me, it's now the Treasury is essentially, uh, I think what we're seeing is outright fiscal dominance. I mean, would you agree? And, and what are the, I guess, the ramifications of that? I, I would agree. And, and the ramifications are a gigantic unknown uh, because, again, we don't know how this is going to play out on the global stage. We assume global dominance. But if you, again, look at foreigners stepping back from treasury auctions, that assumption is getting weaker as, as a factor of time. The only thing really holding this together is the fact that there's massive food shortages in China and there's massive technological supply shortages here in the United States. So there, there is something to be said for you know keeping a, a symbiotic relationship alive, uh, to say nothing of the fact that if, if it breaks down, there might be a hot war behind it. But, uh, but, but there has to be, there has to be a, a, a recognition that there was a leveraged buyout of the Federal Reserve System under Steven Mnuchin. And that this was something that was, the, the divorce took place in 1951 with William McChesney Martin, my hero. I love him even more than Paul Volcker. He was the guy who talked about the punch bowl and how it was the Fed's duty to take it away just as the party was getting going. This Fed does it the, exactly the opposite. If the drunk is sitting at the bar, they're like, how many shots can I line up for you? Right. I don't know. But, but Stephen Mnuchin, he, 
there was a plan in place, Jesse, and I'm not, I, I'm the, the least conspiracy theory person on planet Earth, but because I used to work at the Fed, I can tell you that Christmas Eve 2018 left Federal Reserve a scarred entity. And from that day forth, the first day back at work in 2019, before Powell even made his pivot on stage with Bernanke and Yellen, there was a plan that was in its, in its infancy, that was in its outline stages that said, if there's another seizure in the credit markets, what will the Fed do? Coming from the bureaucratic organization as I am, having spent nine years on the inside during the crisis, you don't just roll out facilities. It took us a little while in the aftermath of the financial crisis to come up with each individual, individual liquidity facility. So how then does the Fed come up with seemingly overnight? It rolled out all of its prior facilities. It took interest rates to the zero bound, but it had a bunch of structured vehicles in place for the municipal bond market and the corporate bond market, which were debated extensively when I was inside the Fed. But that was a plan that was in place on March the 23rd, all the way down to grandfathering in triple B rated credits that were downgraded after March the 22nd, such that they retained their investment grade standing in the market in the Fed's eyes. And that type of an intricate plan does not come out of a bureaucracy in the heat of a pandemic, but it was clearly to me something that was ready to go in the event that there was a black swan that happened upon record U.S. leverage headed into 2020. Well, I don't think you have to be a, a conspiracy theorist to just simply recognize, as you do in the book, the, the close ties between Goldman alums and you know the Fed and the Treasury, um, and obviously hey, you're saying it wrong. You, you got to fast forward, Jesse. It's called BlackRock, but continue. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, and so it's you know obviously the uh, you know there is a deep understanding and um, you know uh, of people like Mnuchin with a background on Wall Street of you know we can, we can only get away with X unless the Fed is willing to backstop us. Then we can get away with X times two or three or four. And it seems to me like, you know, through the, uh, you know, the, the tax cuts and the deficit, the Fed was forced to come in and, and, uh, and monetize those um, to you know, rescue the repo market. Um, but now it seems like, you know, that is kind of a, a just a, a de facto policy for for uh, you know the federal government now is we know that the Fed is and, and Jay Powell has said as much do whatever you guys need to do and I'll monetize it um, and, and so the Fed has been completely subjugated to the will of the fiscal authorities to they me have. go and, ahead and, and, they, and, and to your point though the, the Fed has made itself publicly the subject it is not making any bones about it. There is when, when, always the hair on the back of my neck always stands up when I hear all Fed officials singing the same tune, because that means it's it's that means it's it's a sanctioned path for communication within the firm. Everybody toe the line. Everybody say the same thing. Every single Fed official for the last nine months has been saying we need more fiscal spending. Right, and it, and it that comes back to the fact that they really don't have. They're recognizing that, that their tools are limited, and in actually helping the lower leg of the K. Um, but I want to come back to this uh, notion of what what is the limit to central bank money printing. Um, I want to just get your thought on. There's an interview that w uh, William White gave. I don't know four or five years ago, um, where he was asked this exact question. And it sounds, you know, his answer was kind of relevant to today. He said, uh, the theoretical limit was discussed in a paper called Some Unpleasant Monetarist Arithmetic by Sergeant Wallace in 1981. Suppose a central bank is worried about rising inflation and decides to raise interest rates, but the government has a huge debt with short maturity. By raising short-term interest rates, the central bank raises the debt service burden for the government. At some point, people realize the government can't support the debt burden without going back to the central bank to print more money. This is a tipping point, and then you're in hyperinflation. Um, to me, that sounds like that, that's the most obvious end game for all of this. What are your thoughts? 
Well, I, I do see that as being the case. And I think that there's been a slight recognition of this risk with the introduction, the reintroduction of the 20 year treasury. Uh, because bear in mind, the United States has gone the opposite route of many developed nations in terms of, of, of reducing the average maturity of treasuries outstanding, which is, a, it's, it's playing with fire in this sense, but, but that would be the, that would be the way that you would get from, from a stagflationary environment, theoretically, to one that is hyperinflationary. And, you know, God help us, God help our children and, and hold on to your gold. Right. And it just seems to me, I mean, he's talking about, you make the point that, uh, you know, huge debt with a short maturity. It, it seems like that, you know, we were talking about repo, repo and the treasury bill issuance, you know, to fund the, the deficit was, was pretty massive. Um, you know, it seems to me with the Fed, you mentioned hubris in light of this uh, 2% inflation target. With this risk on the horizon of encouraging, you know, massive fiscal stimulus, um, and you know, the, the printing money to 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 pay for it. Um, there is a point where where the interest on the debt could uh, you know rise to the point where you know the the Fed's going to have to um, you know print money just to pay the interest on the debt. Are, are we are we approaching that that type of a scenario, or what do you? I guess how would you handicap the risk of that? Well, you know, it's it's so 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 difficult to say. Um, I, I I don't know what the, the quantitative ceiling is theoretically. I, I don't think we're going to have to wait too terribly long to find out, uh, because I, I I'm I'm extremely excited about the the vaccine. My mother's seventy four years old. I cannot wait for her to get the vaccine. But I don't think that this pandemic has been whipped. And I don't think it's as simple as saying we're going to be back to full employment by January 2022. And so I, I do foresee a situation in which we need more fiscal stimulus than what we're envisioning, especially because we're not putting it towards productive means with infrastructure spending or jobs reskilling for millions of people who are losing their jobs in brick and mortar retail, to take but one example, or the one in 10 global employees who worked in travel and tourism pre-pandemic those, those jobs aren't coming back, at least not to the same extent by a wide margin, but we're not doing anything to address the underlying problem. So if the solution is to simply throw more money and hope that we buy time, then that's going to end up testing the limit that you're talking about because of the magnitude of fiscal spending that's going to be required to make sure that we don't have, I mean, I, I can't even joke about it anymore, to, to make sure we don't have riots in the streets. Yeah, we're absolutely having those right now, and and I, I guess I just don't even either. I, I, to me, it's it's astounding to me that with this particular risk out there of um, just opening the door to a, a hyperinflation, which I, I I don't think it's you know better than even odds or anything. I'm not you know promoting the idea of hyperinflation, but I do think it's it's a major potential risk out there that the Fed would even play with fire in, try, in terms of trying to stoke uh, inflation expectations and, uh, you know, and these sorts of things. Because it seems to me like, you know, and that's why I brought it back to this, this term, you know, hubris. It's incredible hubris to think that you can under the situation that we're in, that William White describes, um, you know, uh, that you can create inflation and still at the same time prevent it from becoming that type of a problem. And therein, and William White happens to be a dear friend, and therein lies the rub, Jesse. And you, you start to talk about the, the Fed and this inflation narrative. You, you study what they've been buying because they couldn't make inflation follow the narrative. For, I mean, the core PCE is at its core a huge issue, but that's not what I'm talking about. I, I'm, I'm, in the last year, we've seen the Fed increase tremendously its purchases in the tips market because it couldn't get this inflation's going to run hot and we need to introduce a new regime and an average inflation targeting, which raised the 10-year yield by all of 10 basis points. So they couldn't feed the inflation narrative enough 
So they ended up buying the tips market. And people are like, oh, look at real yields. Oh my gosh, what's happening? And I'm like, well, the Fed's buying a lot of tips for one, and the market is following them into the tips market. So you're forcing the narrative. But other than that, the play ended very well. So, but, but that is the kind of problem that the Fed does not understand that it needs to have. Because if there is ever a moment when and the market is like, this is fantastic. We're going to get the tenure up to 135. Maybe we're going to even get the tenure up to 150. And the Fed's going to roll out yield curve control. And we've been desperate for a, something new, anything new at a J-PAL conference. And we're so excited. And this is going to be the next leg up in the markets. Forget the fact that they're in the 99th percentile in on the S&P back to 1881, according to Schiller's CAPE index, KPE ratio. But people are looking for the next big thing that the Fed's going to launch. Well, capping yields can get to be a fool's game if inflation really becomes unhinged. So, but the Fed has this, this, this pride in their models that this is something that inflation is something that's going to be able to be orchestrated and controlled to the last basis point. That's not how it works. It is not how it works when you're talking about fiscal spending on the magnitude that we are and the Fed coming in and saying, we'll just cap it and it'll be an easy game. Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought up yield curve control because it seems to me, you know, if there's one way the Fed would try and battle that hyperinflationary outcome where the interest rates rise to the point where the government can't afford the interest on the debt that they just say what well, you will use yield curve control we'll cap those interest rates so that it doesn't that doesn't happen and it's also you know i think it would be in the fed's best interest as well because i think the wall street journal i guess posited recently that if we do see interest rates back up too much um you know the fed could quickly find itself insolvent and having to go to the treasury for additional funding um, you know, and at a time when the treasury is already under strain. And so do you think we will see yield c- c- control over at, at some point? Uh, I think that, I think that especially a Jay Powell fed, and this is where the line is drawn in between Powell and Yellen, because Yellen is on the record saying under the, under the, under the correct circumstances that she could see the efficacy of negative interest rates. Jay Powell, at least, he'd have to be dead to advocate for negative interest rates because he, he, he comes from finance and he understands that not only would it kill the banking system in the United States, but that every other central bank in the world has license to impose negative interest rates because then they can take the nominally positive risk-free rate from the United States and substitute it into their financial models so they don't blow up. The Bank of England... Produced an, published an entire paper on this subject about the risks of imposing negative interest rates. But that is where you see the philosophical hard line in the sand between Yellen and Powell, which is why Powell's so desperate to get that 10-year yield up so that he doesn't have to talk about negative interest rates, which is where the discussion would go if nominal rates continued to decline as they had going into last summer. But if you get them high enough, you move the, the discussion away from negative interest rates over to yield curve control. And again, there's, there's no Hippocratic oath among central bankers. They don't know how to do nothing, even though doing something is going to harm the patient more. Right. And, and it seems to me, you know, that is the, the real desperation for, the, you know, to try and hit this 2% figure is that the zero lower bound is like, uh, you know, central bankers you know, they see it in their nightmares, right? And they, we have to do whatever it takes to get off the zero lower bound. Only in America. They only see it in their, in their nightmares in America. Yeah. We, um, we have to hold the line. Right. Uh, you know, I guess the other thing I want to ask you about, you know, yield curve control. So, and I'm thinking about in terms of how all this kind of, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, the end game for these types of um, these uh, developments that we're watching um, yield curve control is one. My friend Bill Fleckenstein has said that, you know, at some point the bond market will take the printing press away. Yield curve control kind of allows the Fed to say, no, the bond market's not going to take the printing press away. But my thought is that if they do pursue yield curve control, and like you you mentioned, inflation does 
uh, is kind of taking off in that um, light, we see deeply negative real interest rates. Um, we could see the dollar crash. Um, and to me, that would be the, you know, the currency would be the one to take the printing press away. What do you think that's, you know, uh, something to be concerned about? Well, we've seen it, right? We've seen it live. We've, we've had front row seats and popcorn because when the Fed took control of the corporate bond market, which is where the systemic risk was, was in the system, uh, the, the the financial markets absolutely had to have an outlet. And that outlet has been the dollar over the past 12 months. So we, yeah, we've, and, and I guess my point is that, you know, the dollar's gone down, you know, what is it? 10% or something. We've seen dollar bear, mar- bear markets where it goes down 30, 40%. Um, I, I guess, are you suggesting that th- th- this down move is kind of a hint of, of, of a bigger move we could see if they did pursue yield curve control in an inflationary or stagflationary type of environment. Yes, we certainly could. And I, I have to be, I, I, am, I am immediate term, fairly dollar bullish right now. I have to say that, but that's just me looking at, looking at crowds. And There's crowd- way too many dollar shorts right now. Absolutely. But longer term, again, if if the because we have to remember the Fed had yield curve control going for a very long time, but this was during a war, and the aftermath of the war at a starting point in the U.S. economy where growth was seen, you know, as far as the eye could see, as opposed to a demographic situation that is upon us as a country and a slowing consumer. Uh, but but you could you could easily foresee again. I, I, people get t- they tire of hear, hearing me say this, but right now as we speak, as you Jesse and Danielle are speaking, there are thirty airports in China in some form of of improvement or construction, and so that is fiscal spending. With there's a means to an end, but if we insist on fiscal spending with no means. And no end in sight, there, there will have to be an outlet. And the longer we go down this path, the faster it will be that China is going to overcome the United States because you're right. It's the dollar that is being put at risk more than anything else if we continue to stand on the laurels of using the dollar's reserve, reserve currency status to run up unlimited amounts of debt. So it seems to me that you know whatever the the end game is for this, there is going to be one, and and there's going to have to be a reformation at the Fed at some point. Um, we're going to there's going to be a consensus, I think, a broad consensus at some point that the policies that that we've seen over the last ten and really twenty five years are are not sustainable. Um, ha- I guess my question for you is how would you, you know, see the Fed reformed in a positive way so that uh you know we don't see this type of wealth inequality, social unrest, um you know the the monster in the markets that the Fed's created. I guess what what would the Fed look like to you in a in a uh ideal world? Well, I I think that that more than anything else we'll have to see you're going to have to have a, a, a driver to get there because most of the people who are advocating for reforming the Fed have left politics. And the old guard would no sooner abandon the current construct than a man in the moon because they've learned how to enjoy running up the federal debt because the Fed has been willing to implicitly monetize it for generations. So you almost have to have in place a third political party, which is something I can say and no longer get laughed at. Uh, But you have to have enough political will to push for deep changes at the Fed. People always criticize me, Danielle, why won't you finally get on the end the Fed bandwagon? What is the matter with you? And my stock answer is look at what, China has done to an unguarded technological system. Can you imagine what would happen to an unguarded American financial system? 
Do we need, as my last chapter delves into, and it's still relevant to this day, do we need 12 Federal Reserve districts in a pissing contest with each other, wasting money? No, absolutely, we do not. But we do need a strong regulatory framework. We don't need an OCC and we don't need an FDIC and we don't need a, we need a strong banking and financial system supervisor, including the shadow banks. And we need a strong central bank focused solely on minimizing inflation. And we need for that mandate to be fulfilled as it was originally in 1913 by a leadership grouping from a diversity of industries and geographies. Nowhere in the Federal Reserve Act does it say that you must have mostly PhDs in economics who've never had to hold a day job, who have pensions and healthcare for life, running monetary policy for everybody in America. Nowhere does it say that. It says that the, that the president of the United States is mandated with filling out the Federal Open Market Committee with a diversity of, of, of people with different industry backgrounds and geographies. It's such a great point. And, and I totally agree with you. I mean, we, we absolutely need a lender of last resort to the financial system to prevent um, you know, crises, but we also don't need a central bank to lay the groundwork for those crises in the first place. Uh, I guess my, my thought or my hope, maybe I'm too optimistic, is that whatever the end game, uh, whether it's inflation or another asset price bust or the combination of the two, those, that event will create the impetus for some major change. We'll recognize, just as we did kind of, I guess, in the, in the 70s or in the, the 80s after Volcker, that you know, policies of the past didn't, didn't work and we need a different framework. Um, we will, but you know, I, I, I know we're almost out of time, but I have, to, I have to go back to what Quill's 2021 outlook was all about, and that's that starting points matter. So again, when you're in the 99th percentile and when you've tacked on another couple trillion dollars of debt to corporate America's balance sheet to resolve a situation that was, that was catalyzed by being over indebted, that is not a starting point. And you don't need a black swan in this environment to set off a, a market calamity. But much, much more importantly, the bottom line is the Fed at this juncture has not had enough time to go back to the drawing board and come up with a whole new shock and awe campaign. And it, they're hard pressed right now to come up with new tools in the toolbox should something go wrong in the markets, which I don't think the average investor appreciates. Right. And, and that's, you know, um, it, it's amazing to me that every time I've thought the Fed was out of ammo, they, they have uh, found a way to prove me wrong. I hope they don't ever get into buying equities like other, other markets have, but you're right. We, we're, out of time, I just want to. There's there's one other quote from the book. It was uh, that I wanted to end with because I think it's just so. It's, I've never heard a better description of the Fed than this. It was uh, a photo that uh, Fisher brought to a Fed meeting. Um, he said it was posted at a NATO tracking and transmission station. Um, the sign greets visitors in the Norse language, which translates to English as "Theory is when you understand everything, but nothing works." Practices when everything works, but nobody understands why. At this station, theory and practice are united, so nothing works and nobody understands why. I thought with the, the cojones for bringing that to a, to a meeting and sharing with everybody, you know, is awesome. But it's just it's it's a perfect uh, explanation of of uh, of the Fed in my view. So uh, thank you for thank you and and uh, for Richard for we need more voices like you guys out there. Uh, holding you know people accountable and, and bringing a diversity of opinion that I, I think is is really uh, meaningful. So, um, if everybody wants to check out your work, uh, Quill Intelligence, I recommend everybody do. Where where can they find you? That it's pretty easy. Quillintelligence.com. Just come on over. Uh, I, I have to say that our our retail product, quote unquote, is much more institutional. Uh, and it's about the, the cheapest you could possibly imagine. And we've got a great institutional, very full, robust lineup as well. And, and Jesse, you can, testi you can testify to the fact that if, if people don't follow me on Twitter already, then they, they have a, a, a good way to, to resolve any boredom they have. No, I was going to say uh, it's at DMartino Booth. 
Uh, you are so generous with your, your time and your knowledge on Twitter, far more than I am. <laughs> you, uh, you tolerate a lot of, uh, you know, trolls and things, but mostly you, you, you share your, like I said, you're generous with your knowledge and, and experience and expertise. So thank you for doing that. I recommend everybody go follow Danielle on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time, Daniel. We'll have to uh, do it again sometime um, sooner than three years. So, <laughs> thanks. Yes, indeed. I look forward. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character, and that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs> <laughs>